in the high desert in the great American Southwest. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM. John, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. You're with us. You're with us. You're with us. Welcome to Coast to Coast PM, the number one unofficial Coast to Coast AM podcast. We are two brothers who analyze the world's largest overnight paranormal radio show known as Coast to Coast AM. My name is Paul, and I'm the guy that listens to this inexplicable radio show here with my brother. Hey, it's Chris. I'm the Liam Gallagher to your Noel Gallagher, except I've never heckled you at one of our concerts. You have not, but you've heckled me on this podcast. I have heckled you on this podcast. Quite a bit. Not as much as I've heckled the Canadians, though. That You were really mean to the Canadians last time. I was mean to the Canadians. I got called out for being too mean to the Canadians. Did you? Yes. So apologies to the great country of Canada. Uh, We love you here. I stand with the Canadians on this. I side with them in this battle. I love Canada. Toronto and Montreal, beautiful cities. I love them both. Uh, Chris, I got some big news. I know we don't normally do banter, but something... America light in kilometers. Chris, I have big news. I am now the proud owner of a signed copy of Art Bell's book, The Quickening. Oh my goodness, that's incredible. I am so excited about it. We may do a reading series on it at some point. We're going to have to. It's just fun. it's that the signed copy and here's the thing you didn't know it was signed i didn't know it was signed i bought it for two dollars from a thrift bookstore and then realized it was signed afterwards so uh i think that's a sign from art saying hey you're doing a good job kid (laughs) art's looking down from above he said not bad (laughs) we he appreciates the work for sure i'm gonna give you a one not bad kid but yeah definitely a reading series on that for sure oh it's gonna be great well today's episode though is a very exciting one that is actually a listener request uh by ken from new hampshire so thank you ken Ooh, for kenny boy thanks for reaching out yeah this is going to be the june 20th 1993 interview uh with art bell and al bielik about the philadelphia experiments all right okay i i've heard of the philadelphia experiment it has something to do with time travel, right? Oh, we're going to get into it. I don't want to spoil okay. anything because okay. this story is full of plot twists. All right. But to give you just a high-level overview, the Philadelphia Experiment, it's honestly more of an urban legend than anything else. But it's an alleged of invisibility project ran at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard in 1943 where they attempted to turn the USS Eldridge invisible. And I'm guessing hijinks ensue. High jinks definitely into it gets wild. Some okay. crazy things happen. So today's interviews with Al Bielik, who claims to not only have worked on the project, but said that he was physically on the ship when it disappeared. And so I guess he has a whole story of where it disappeared to. He's got a big old story on what happens both on the ship and off the ship in the time that it disappeared. Dude, man, those post-war 1940s, early 50s, have to be the most insane place on the planet when it came to like top secret research. Oh yeah, man. You know, completely everything going on during wartime, like existential threat, the world's going to war. And if you had a half baked idea and could 
kind of show you had some theory behind it, you could probably get a very large grant from the DOD. To be fair, I think that's still the case today. (laughs) (laughs) You you always have to remember that, dude. Like when we talk about MKUltra, it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. All they did was melt people's brains. They couldn't actually control them in any effective way. All right, Paul, that's enough banter. It's Tim time. Tim time. All right, let's go check in with the Coast to Coast AM blog with our good friend, Tim Banal. Timmy. Today's article. Teacher fired for showing The Exorcist to elementary school students. That's probably a bad movie to show <laughs> to elementary school students. That's fair. Yeah, I don't know if they can really handle that. Yeah. So let's, let's jump in, find out what happened. A Dutch man lost his job as a substitute teacher at an elementary school after it was discovered that he had been forcing students to watch horror films, including The Exorcist. What was his, what was his like, modus operandi what was he trying to get out of this i think he just really liked scary movies and he's He's like like, i'm gonna be here kids you're gonna love this one it's called the exorcist it's great (laughs) the first real use of green puke so phenomenal (laughs) the strange case reportedly came to light last week when administrators and police were contacted by parents who were concerned about what their kids said were creepy movies being shown in the class A subsequent investigation found that a substitute teacher had been terrifying the tots aged seven to nine. That's too early for the exorcist. That's too too early early for the exorcist. With unnerving films that uh, he screened for them while they were eating their lunch. Oh, what an insane person. First off, too young for the exorcist. Second off, definitely too young to eat during lunch. I don't even want to watch that during lunch. Wasn't our axe-wielding crazy person that was roaming the docks also from the Netherlands? He was. I think that Tim Banal has three different regions Google alerted. It's the Netherlands, India, and the United States. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's where a lot of our shows come from. Most of it. What's going on in the Netherlands? Dude, are they all just so stoned that they can't comprehend how to be a real human anymore? It's those crazy mushrooms they got over there, man. Yeah, the in the the dikes and levees, dude. They live in ocean. They do. They do. Now, among the frightening fare chosen by the teacher were the classic horror films, The Exorcist, as well as the sci-fi hit District Nine. Oh, actually, great film. Again. Seven to nine-year-olds is too early to be showing that film. That's at least a little better than The Exorcist, though. It's not quite as brutal. It's still intense, though. There are some intense scenes in that movie. As one might imagine, parents were not too thrilled with the man's lesson plan. As one angry father explained that some of the kids would, quote, run to the corridor to hide, while others, quote, didn't want to go back to class. And many reported experiencing nightmares from having seen the movies. Yeah. Okay, the, all, all tracking. Even worse, children who complained about being scared were said to be mercilessly mocked by the substitutes. <laughs> so he's making fun of these scared children while terrorizing them with horror movies. What are you, seven years old? In what one might call an undeniable case of consciousness of guilt, the teacher had instructed the children not to tell anyone about seeing the films at school. And oh amazingly, my God, what a is, psychopath. This is the best part. Amazingly, had devised a setup wherein the movie would switch to a kid-friendly movie, such as the Pink Panther, should another adult enter the room. 
this guy what this is like psychopathic behavior yeah incredible Absolutely imagine incredible. it's like he he programmed something where he hits like the space bar and suddenly the tv flips right right you yeah. know yeah uh, well because i mean nobody has vhs or dvds anymore it's all streaming so it's not like it's super hard he just has a movie playing in the background yeah. and then can quickly bring it up flip over to it yeah he knew very well what he was doing, the head of the school declared to parents in a letter explaining the situation, which understandably led to the substitute being dismissed when his highly unprofessional conduct was discovered. Can you imagine being the principal having to write that letter, just being like, dude, where have I gone wrong in my life <laughs> where I'm having to write a letter that a, teach a substitute teacher has been secretly showing your seven-year-old horror films in class and instructing their students not to say anything to their parents that's messed up man that's messed up dude i feel bad for the principal but also like let's increase those hiring standards an insane person like that is going to be uh found out well here's the thing is that it's actually really difficult to hire teachers right now we're, we're in a bit of a teacher crisis here. that in the is States. also true dude they're probably yeah. you know it's like anyone off the street saying that they'll come substitute they're like all right that's fine please just we need so much help right now. We need a warm body to sit here and watch these children. So we're probably going to get more of these stories. We may. Hopefully not too many more because uh, we got to they're the future. We got to protect. Wait, kids. Dude, Timmy needs to find us a teacher who forces their kids to do Ouija boards in class. And <laughs> That's seances. the dream. That's the dream. Like they use the children to like summon a demon lord or something. You know, that would be quite the Tim Banal article. So yeah. uh, when that drops, we will be here for you at Coast to Coast PM to read it. But for today, let's get to our uh, our, our housekeeping, Chris. Yes. Housekeeping. So, so number one, we have an email address. You can send your thoughts and episode requests to c2cpmpod at gmail.com. Just like today's episode was a request, you too can request episodes. Uh, if you like the show, please give us five stars uh, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and smash that subscribe button. We drop every Thursday and that'll make sure you never miss an episode. And thank you to everyone who has told friends about us. We don't advertise or really do anything to promote the podcast. This is 100% <laughs> organic. So we appreciate all of you. <laughs> We're actually really bad at promoting, it turns out. We we don't know what we're doing, so we, we need We don't help. know what we're doing, <laughs> and we get frustrated easily and stop. Pretty much. That's how it goes. The only thing that we're good at is making this show, and I don't even know how good we're at that. I don't know, man. Uh, you know, we'll see. We'll find out today, I guess. You know, another, another go at it. Uh, and new little segment, uh, listener mail. Listener mail. We got an email from Peter, uh, and Peter wrote in with, with quite a funny little bit here. Hi, Chris and Paul. I keep hearing you guys mention talk about buying haunted houses to rent them out to ghost hunters. Instead of Airbnb, you should call it Scarebnb. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. But I think we should start this business. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a demand for haunted house rentals. And Scarebnb is such a good name. That's a great name. That's a great name. That's a great name. So anyways, if we got any investors out there that want to get into ScareBnB, send us an email. Yeah, it's in the show notes. It's in the, show in the show notes. notes. All right, let's get to our story for today, the Philadelphia Experiment. And I love this story. So I'm really glad that our boy uh, Ken from New Hampshire wrote in about this. Let's start at the beginning. When did this Philadelphia Experiment thing really kick off? 
on the Philadelphia Experiment and my history with that. The history for the Philadelphia Experiment involving not only the USS Eldridge, but some earlier ships and experimentation goes back a long ways. Actually goes back to 1931 when the first experimental considerations of the possibility of making an object invisible were engaged by Dr. Nikola Tesla and Dr. John Hutchinson of the University of Chicago because the initial staffing, which started in 1933, involved people like Dr. John von Neumann, Albert Einstein, <clears throat> a Dr. Alexander, and a Dr. Oswald Fablum. They were the four original staff members. Al, um, a lot of the fictional accounts of invisibility, uh, from The Invisible Man, which is a fairly recent movie, to The Philadelphia Experiment, and a number of others, all seem to um, uh, deal with um, a very um, high-energy electromagnetic fields. That's, that is correct. The original work uh, involved electromagnetics, but it's actually electromagnetics going beyond the range of electromagnetics. So is that even remotely true that these heavy hitters were a part of the Philadelphia experiment? Well, we're going to have to get into whether the Philadelphia experiment was real at the end of this. Even uh, Oh, so it's not even 100% sure that this is a real experiment that happens we'll we'll get into it at the end yeah okay about what what the history of the philadelphia experiment is but from al Bielik's perspective we got einstein we got Tes tesla we got dr van orman uh who are all involved in this one experiment heavy hitters dude those heavy are all the big names those are all the big yeah. names heavy and here's hitters. the thing al Bielik is very convincing because he has the names he has the dates he sounds very sciencey through all of this Oh, really? I was going to say that was actually, like I said, I was like, hold up a second. Like, he's naming names. He's given dates. He's got some specifics. He did his homework. Yeah, he did his homework on this. So they start out the tests because they, they want to turn a ship invisible, right? But you can't start with a battleship. You got to start small. So they pull a small ship in to see if they can do like a baby ship before they get to the big boy ship. In any case, they went onward with the research work, and by 1940, they had a fully successful test at the Brooklyn Navy Yard involving a small Navy ship, a tender, and there were two ships adjacent, one starboard, one port, which carried most of the heavy equipment, and the balance of the equipment, their special coils and the antenna, were installed on the ship, which was to be made invisible. And the important point of that test was while it was completely successful, there were no personnel on board. It was completely deserted insofar as any uh, people, uh, any personnel of any kind. So they made a smaller ship disappear in when, 1940? 1940. So what they're doing is they're putting basically Tesla coils on the ship, and they have other ships around it that are blasting it with electromagnet like electromagnetic waves, and then that's creating like a bubble that's then causing the ship to disappear. That is incredible. It's a cool story. That's what I, like, I think we just said that. If you need to add a weird tech to your lore, go to Tesla. Yeah. Go to Tesla. His, he did some really weird stuff with electromagnetism. So I don't know. Could you disappear something with a, with a big electromagnetism bubble? Sure. Why not? And what they're, what they're doing is they're not making the ship, like, leave 
in any way, right? What they're typically doing is just make it invisible. So the idea right. is that they're creating an electromagnetic bubble around the ship, and then that's like dispersing the light waves, I guess. So the ship's still there, but you just can't see it, and it's also not detectable by radar. So it's oh. invisible to the naked eye and invisible to radar is ultimately. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. So let's get a little bio on this Al Bielik, right? So yeah. what's his deal? What's he doing with the Philadelphia this is, experiment. This is the George Nori. How'd you get into this? How'd you get into this? So we did. We both uh, acquired an education in physics, a PhD. I first went to Princeton, then I was transferred to Harvard. A Dr. Von Neumann suggestion, because I met him at Princeton. Took a PhD from Harvard in the summer of 39, and my brother Duncan from the University of Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland, and also the summer of 1939. By father's insistence on arrangement, we both joined the Navy in September 1939. So you, you have a Ph.D. in physics? Under the name of Edward Cameron. I see. Not as Al Bielik. And then in January 1940, we were assigned to the Institute, the Institute of Advanced Study, where we were brought up to speed on the project. We didn't know really what we were going to be assigned to, but we knew we were going to be on some special project. And that's how we became, both Duncan, my brother, and myself, became involved in the Philadelphia experiment. So is any of that true? Did he actually have a PhD in physics? So I, I don't have a good way of verifying that outside of his okay. own personal bio. Yeah. Um, he does talk about how his name changed. So he never really gets into the reason why in this episode. But I was curious point, about that. Did you learn yeah. more about the name change? No, no. So he he changes his name, and I believe it was because of his involvement in these like very deep undercover operations. Uh, so he, it's it's honestly a little sketchy, like why okay. the name change. He doesn't really explain it very well. Okay. Now Tesla was involved in this, right? And he was leading the project on making the ship turn invisible. Uh, and basically, he was told like, "Yo, you got to make a battleship invisible, right? This is World War Two, like." The, the German submarines are like sinking our ships, like half of the ships that we're sending over the ocean are getting sunk by German submarines. So we got to right. figure out a way of stopping this. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was Tesla's big job. And making a ship invisible, heck of a way to not get sunk. Good way to not have submarines sink you is yeah. if they can't see you, man. Right. Yeah. If they have no idea you're there because you're getting blasted with electromagnetism. It helps. It certainly yeah, helps. It helps. Roosevelt told Tesla he was giving him a somewhat larger ship to make invisible, literally a battleship. So he proceeded to prepare for this, had a water equipment, do a lot of further work. Preparations were well underway and nearly complete for the battleship test. And Tesla was having considerable misgivings about it at that time. He knew because of the extremely high power required, electromagnetic power, that there could be damage to dead sailors because the equipment was going to be on the deck and the rotating fields were very powerful and any personnel on deck would be exposed to them and he expected there would be serious problems. He went to the Navy and asked for an extension of time. He says he was certain he could solve the problem, but he needed more time. And, of course, he received the usual answer at that time was, there's a war on, you've got a test date and meet it. <laughs> so he had the choice of going ahead and uh, hoping for the best or as he did choose, sabotage the test, detune the equipment so nothing happened and nobody was hurt. Well, then he bowed out and says, uh, the test is a failure, gentlemen. I have other things to do. I'm leaving this project. <laughs> so anyways, I got I to gotta put a real quick timeout, Paul. Yeah. Because I know a little bit about Tesla. All right. I thought the whole thing about the energy creation that Tesla used was that it was safe for humans. 
like I've seen these pictures of of Tesla like sitting there reading a book while giant like energy coils are blasting in the air and stuff and he's just sitting underneath it like the whole thing about the energy that Tesla created was that it couldn't kill you so I think what is dangerous in this is the power of the electromagnetic waves that are being sent so i think it's just at such a high frequency that it can start to impact humans yeah there's not an explanation for that exactly that is provided i'll tell you that yeah because so that was the way that thomas edison defeats tesla is that he he like does this whole like dog and pony show of taking tesla's energy creation right and then he puts an elephant near it and freaking kills the elephant claiming that it was the energy source of tesla's material he called up newspapers and like early radio and they have this huge field day and tesla gets freaking smashed because of it yeah the energy wars were brutal man yeah it was crazy stuff dude edison was i mean he was a capitalist at the end of the day right he was a madman he really was well and in this story tesla's really the hero because he sees that there's an issue he's like this is going to harm human beings we can't move forward and then he breaks the machines so that they actually can't complete the experiment dude that's so tesla too i mean he (laughs) really was he really was kind of a madman he was a rebel he was a rebel in the end yeah so Tesla leaves, he's off the project, and then this guy, Von Oyman, takes over, right? And then he's going to okay. change things up a bit, and he's like, now we're going to get this working. So I don't know much about this guy. What Do you have any background on him? I couldn't find a ton on him. He was a real scientist. I think he was a big name back in the 40s, uh, but there's okay. not a ton of, of biography available. Sounds um, German to me, Paul. Probably. So he <laughs> takes over, and he's going to fix things and, and get this right. project back on track and get yeah. this battleship invisible. Right. War's on. And the basic approach involved rotating fields, a rotating magnetic field outside of a rotating electric field, Mm. uh, both counterclockwise. And the equipment design involved some changes, and particularly upping the power. Uh, Von Neumann went up to a 2 megawatt power output with a booster on each RF transmitter. Uh, I can't say a standard AM transmitter, but a standard transmitter of the day which they were pushing the state of the arc because the output was 160 megahertz, which was high frequency in those days. So these four coils were placed on the deck of the Eldridge, two forward, two aft, and of course there were two in starboard and two port, and they were symmetrically arranged around the antenna. And they were driven with very high-powered current pulses. And there was a certain rate, approximately a 10% duty cycle, and frequency so that you wound up with a rotating magnetic field. So that was a lot of science there, Paul. That was. And I wanted to include that because of how sciencey he is. And he's right. been sciencey throughout the entire episode. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. He, I mean, that's pretty impressive. Stuff. That's <laughs> pretty impressive. Um, It was I, my eyes glazed over a little bit. I'm not going to lie because he got so sciencey. And here's the thing. I also don't really know if anything that he's talking about works this way. Right. So it's not, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where he just throws out so many science facts and you're like, all right, that sounds smart. I don't know enough about electromagnetism to refute anything he just said. 
Yeah. Well, in when callers call in later and say like that's not how electromagnetism works, his response is uh, according to your understanding of electromagnetism. But what he's saying they're basing these theories off of is Einstein's unified field theory, which is Einstein's idea of like a theory of everything, where right. we have general relativity that says how like big stuff like planets move. We've got quantum mechanics who say how like the little stuff like electrons move. And there's one theory that unifies it all that no one's been able to figure out. According to Albelic, that has been figured out. And that's how we are able to do this is using those theories. They're just not sharing the unified theory with everyone. They're just not telling anyone. Well, then you'd lose control of the invisibility procedure. Yeah, I want to know more about the actual Philadelphia experiment. Are we about to get there? We are about to get to it. So they finally actually test this out on a battleship. That's what I want to know, dude. So on the 22nd of July, they were ready for a test, and we were out in the harbor, and we received command by radio to the radio operator to proceed with the test. So we fired up the equipment in the appropriate order, and they ran the test for about 20 minutes. And the ship was invisible to the eye other than for a slight haze in the area where the ship was. It was actually in the water, and it was totally invisible to radar. It just faded right off the radar screen. Did that invisibility occur instantly, or did it sort of phase in slowly, or how did it? Phased in slowly. All right. How would you be able to confine the field um, to precisely to the, uh, the the mass of the ship, Al, or did you actually take some, some seawater with you? You took some seawater with you. Ah. That became the concern of Captain Harrison. There, of course, would be some seawater there, right? Because you're you're still there, right? You, like you said, you're not going anywhere. The boat is still there. You just can't see it, and you can't see it on radar. Yeah, and because they're using this like bubble of electromagnetism, then like they're scooping up seawater. Right. And the big concern was that the, the captain was like, oh, my God, the ship is floating in air because the water is no longer there. So they had to shut down the experiment because he was worried that the ship was going to snap in half. That's that's a very interesting thought process. I, I don't really understand exactly why that doesn't make any sense to me. It, it doesn't, because what we're doing is making it invisible. We're not right. making the water disappear. So right. I don't know why he thought that, but according to Al Bielik, that's what he thought. So they shut yeah. the test down. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. The other that's funny like thing a that weird, happens, That's like a weird little thing to add if he's making all this up. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The other thing that I thought was kind of funny was that they actually sent someone out uh, in like a little boat to poke it with a pole, like a really long pole, to see if it was still. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Dude. That's drawing the short straw. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, private first class, come here, come here. Uh, you're going to get in a dinghy and uh, go up to this invisible thing. Poke it with a stick. <laughs> See what happens. You never want to be the guy that has to poke the thing with a literal stick. Yeah, yeah. Never be the guy that pokes the stick. That's what, and we've said this multiple times now. Don't volunteer if you're asked to volunteer in the military. Nothing good can happen. Yeah, we learned that in our Project Edgewood uh, episode. Not, yes. not good, man. Well, and what they found out was when they started poking with a stick, there was like some sort of the the field had created like a barrier where he was actually poking the field itself. Right. Um, and he couldn't actually get to the ship with his pole. It's a force field. You're yeah. creating yeah. a force field, right? Pretty it's much. like the Gungans with their water shields. Yeah, just like that. 
just like the Gungans. Yeah. So, which honestly would really help with the not getting sunk thing. You know? Right. Yeah. If, if, if you're you, already got a water shield, it doesn't matter. If anything, I feel like the bigger story here is that we made a force field around a battleship and not that we made it invisible. Right. <laughs> right. Like, that's incredible. Yeah. So let's get into the madness part of this. Okay. They successfully made this battleship invisible. So none of this has been mad previously. No, this is the normie part. Of the story. <laughs> we cover the normie part. I already feel like I'm going mad. Yeah. <laughs> they did the test with the battleship and no crew on board. Right. So what's the next step? Put some people on it. But hold up. I thought the, the Admiral or whatever puts the kibosh on the experiment. He paused that experiment. So what okay. they decided was let's not make it fully invisible. Let's make it kind of invisible, and that way I don't get anxious. Okay. So we can still kind of see the water. Okay. Made him feel better. And they, they threw a bunch of crew on board. Uh, it's more of like a skeleton crew. There's some people, like, on the deck. There's some people below deck. They're kind of just yeah. scattered all over the place. Yeah, they don't want to lose a battleship worth of crew, but you can lose, like, 15 guys. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah, no big deal. So there we were, and we had orders to proceed with the final test, finally received by radio. So we proceeded and fired up the equipment. So we had three observer ships. We turned the equipment on, and for about the first 70 or so seconds, everything appeared to be functioning according to plan, i.e. radar invisibility, but you could still see the ship through a haze. And all of a sudden, there was a blue flash, and the ship disappeared, waterline and all, and there was no ship in the harbor. It was gone, and I don't mean visibly gone. It was physically gone, and it was gone for about four hours. And then at four hours approximately, the ship suddenly reappeared in the harbor. Needless to say, von Neumann and everybody was panicked when this happened. And there was no way to raise anyone on the radio. There was absolutely no radio connection. They created a portal. Something happened to the ship. They created a portal. And here's the creepiest thing about this is that a ghost ship comes back. Because the ship reappears, right, hours later. And it's radio silent. They don't see anyone on board. No crew on board when it reappears they don't see any and they're getting no signals off the radio ghost ship so the once the ship reappears and they they can't hail it at all and they don't see anyone they send a crew on board the ship mm -hmm. which also don't want to be on that crew no don't want to be don't want to be the guy that goes on to ghost ship that just reappeared after being completely gone for four hours where did this ship go Dude, I'm not a part of that crew. <laughs> bad, bad spot to be in. So let's hear what they found. So they had a special launch go out with a boarding crew. And when they boarded the ship, they found out much more about what happened. They found two men buried in the steel deck. Two men were buried upright in a steel bulkhead. A fifth man had his hand buried in a steel bulkhead. He lived. He was the only one of the five that lived. And they cut his hand off and gave him an artificial hand later. And those who were still on deck were insane and uh, totally out of it. I mean, do mean insane. And those below deck were perfectly all right because they were shielded by the steel. Right. And the one man developed a problem of uh, intermittent and uncontrolled invisibility, but probably due to flux leakage due to the saturating of the steel. He casually says a lot of things there, Chris. Number one, there were people that were melded into the deck, right? So their bodies in the steel had like morphed together. And then there was one guy who would intermittently go invisible. So this, this is actually all pretty interesting stuff because 
theoretically, that's one of the, the theories on creating a portal, right? Is that you would have to blast a certain area with just a metric butt ton of energy. And that would somehow rip open space time. And then that portal is how you would enter. And like, hopefully there would be a place at the end that you would end up also getting beamed with a absolute metric butt ton of energy that you could go in between. Yeah. And it sounds like what's happening is that they're like de-atomizing and then re-atomizing. It's possible. That's a possibility for sure. So that's that. This is all kind of. It's tracking a little bit. You can see that this is he's a Bob Lazar type, right? Mm-hmm. He the, he knows some of the science. He knows enough of the science to be dangerous. Yeah, to, to make it believable. That's why this right. is such an enticing story. Is like it's interesting too. Yeah, because you made a ship invisible and then people like melded with the bulkhead and then one yeah. dude was just phasing in and out of invisibility like that's yeah. what that's a wild story that's wild and like one guy doesn't come with a hand mm-hmm. like that's all kind i mean very interesting stuff it is it's so, all very interesting stuff and and like i said kind of in the theories on what is happening when you're like blasting this high energy you are essentially de-atomizing and then re-atomizing yeah what happens if it's off by a couple you know centimeters then suddenly you're in the steel yeah you're inside the steel or your hand doesn't make it yeah which is a bummer yeah so to your question chris where did the ship go where did the ship go what happened you were on board where did that ship go what happened to us that is duncan and i yes In the first 30 seconds, uh, everything appeared to be normal after the equipment was operational. Then we noticed strange waverings in the tubes, and then some strange electrical arcing started to take place in the control room. And we decided at that point, well, this equipment's going haywire. This is not according to plan. And uh, we've got the bright idea, well, let's jump overboard and swim ashore. We were both good swimmers. So we did jump overboard. Now, I must state... At that point, we could see nothing beyond the railing of the ship. It was just a gray fog, if you will. We jumped overboard. We never hit the water. We decided we didn't know what was happening, but we started to fall and fall and fall through what appeared to be or felt like a tunnel of some kind. And eventually, we wound up standing on our feet on dry land at night on the inside perimeter of a military base. There's a chain link fence immediately to our back. And suddenly there was a bright searchlight beaming down on us from what was obviously a helicopter overhead. What? Yeah. (laughs) So. They got blasted to a military base? Yeah, him and his brother Duncan were just like, let's bail off this ship, jump over the edge, and then they land on a military base. Okay, this is very, I got, got to know more, got to know more. Can't make any real predictions as to what the heck is going on here. Just so many plot twists. And the thing is, yeah. like, here's here's a call out. In 1943, helicopters were not really a thing. They were just being tested. They didn't right. really work. So they didn't even know what this thing was. They weren't right. familiar with helicopters. He just knows it now in modern day that it was a helicopter. Yeah. Right? Wow, dude. You're totally right. Like, the, the helicopter kind of gets its feet wet in Korea and really becomes a tool of the army in Vietnam. Yeah. 
So when they start looking around, they see a very familiar face. An elderly civilian came forward and greeted us <clears throat> and said to us, I've been expecting you, gentlemen. I am Dr. John von Neumann. Oh. He looked at him and said, you're who? And I said, I'm Dr. von Neumann. I said, you can't be. We left him about an hour ago. He's a much younger man. He said, no, I'm sorry, gentlemen. You're no longer in 1943. I'm 40 years older. This is 1983, and you're at Montauk, Long Island, part of the Phoenix Project. He gave us the grand tour of the underground base. We saw computers which did not exist in 43, graphic displays, large screen color TV, and other electronic apparatus totally beyond anything we knew of in 1943. So we were not only impressed, we were thoroughly distraught. They blasted him to the future. They went to 1983. That's where the portal opened up to. Yeah, and they see the doctor that was running the Philadelphia Experiment Project. That's 40 years older. That is awesome. What a good storyline. It's great. And here's the other thing, too, is the Montauk Project is like this very shady, um, you know, conspiracy project, right? The government was running. Right. It's actually the inspiration for Stranger Things. Right. Uh, the all the stuff that was happening in Hawkins with the secret government facility, it's all based on the Montauk project. Right. Right. So we're just pulling all the fun strings here. Yeah, dude. This is good stuff, yeah. dude. This man is a connoisseur of the lore. <laughs> you did a good job. Because it's, it's two brothers job. working on a ship. That's enticing, right? And then they yeah. like see their, their old boss like 40 years ahead of time. That's crazy. Everything about this is such a good story. This is so good. Okay. All right. I need more. Got to get more. So to make this even better, the doctor tells him, I got a mission for you. Yeah. He says, I've known the whole story for some time. I've had it in my record. said, you will go back. We have to send you back to the Eldridge so that you can smash the equipment and shut it off. He says, we can't control it from here. It's still running. The ship disappeared into hyperspace and into a hyperspace bubble, which is a mathematical artificial reality. They said, the problem is that this hyperspace bubble is growing, and we don't know what it's going to encompass and how large it may get. It could engulf the entire Earth. And I said, well, that's great. Just how are we supposed to do that? He says, we'll send you back. And I said, and just how are you going to do that? He says, well, we have complete control over space and time here on this project. We can send you anywhere we want. 84, we have complete access to control space and time. Yep. In 84. We can move you through time and space. They basically have a TARDIS from Doctor Who where they can go wherever they want. What an interesting uh, year to pick as well, 1984. It's a good one, yeah. That's a, that's a funny year to pick. Always got to come back to Mr. George Orwell. You know, it's it's important to do so. We love Orwell. Yeah. So basically, they get blasted into the future. and They are told you have to save the planet. Yeah, because oh, this hyperspace bubble is going to engulf Earth. They, I, it, we're we're literally in the beginning of an origin story for a superhero. Yeah, literally. I mean, we, we got everything from the man losing the hand, the invisible man, you know, evil German telling you to destroy the equipment of the military dude this is great stuff it's it's a really really fun story i love love this uh everything about the philadelphia experiment so exciting yeah i'm excited yeah so i'm excited about that we have complete control of space and time now here's a question that's not addressed yeah why is it that albelic has to go back on the ship why couldn't they just send someone else to start just destroying it 
what do you I, I don't understand because he's the guy that's on the experiment yeah but if it's going to destroy the earth and it's al Bielik and his brother jumped off the ship and they have complete control of space and time why can't they just send you know mikey onto the ship to start busting up the uh the equipment and right, stop okay the hyperspace i level. see why couldn't they send somebody back yeah why does it have to be al Bielik? yeah interesting i don't it's know maybe, yeah well so there could be some kind of weird thing where they had to have somebody on the original experiment to not manipulate space and time or something like that. Some sort of timeline. Right. Hollywood would fix this. Yeah, Hollywood Holly- would definitely yeah, fix yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would, they, would, they would wrap up this in a nice little bow, I think. Yeah, just give me some back to the future type logic and we'll, we'll get yeah, it figured out. Exactly. All right, still, anyways, regardless, they have to get sent back to the Eldridge and just break everything to stop the hyperspace bubble. So he sent us back so we could smash the equipment. So we're back on the deck of the Eldridge. We go in the control room. We find access, and we start smashing everything in sight. And eventually, with enough equipment, the lines cut and equipment smashed, mostly the 606 tubes and some auxiliary electronic equipment. The main generator started to wind down. And at that point, we knew the thing was over. So we went back out on deck. And then, of course, at that point, we saw the bodies buried in the steel. So I'm just making this connection. Is he calling the boat the Eldritch? Yes, it's the like, USS Eldridge. Like Eldridge incantations? So this is an actual boat. This is a real boat. This is we a real have, boat. This is a boat that the Navy has. Yeah, this is 100% real. The boat itself okay. is real. Right. Um, it's the USS Eldridge. I don't know the origins of its name. But is it spelled like Eldritch Incantation? Because I'm just going to say that's a that's a weird little, um, because doesn't Eldritch mean like ancient lore? So it is magic? spelled differently. Okay, okay, okay. And okay, it was okay. it was it's a cannon class destroyer escort and was a ship of the U.S. Navy named for Lieutenant Commander John Eldridge Jr. Eldridge. Eldridge, not Eldritch. Okay, so I, I think it. it's the ch at the end is what means archaic yeah. lore or whatever. right yeah yeah so it, it is different it is different. yeah but it was very real so they get sent back to the past because they saved the ship they show up four hours later in 1943 and then they tell the story to to the doctor who doesn't believe them right so of he course says not. hey I'm we gonna... just met you but you were 40 years older yeah yeah <laughs> and you sent us back to destroy everything because we could envelop the earth and send it to a nether region of nothingness. Pretty much. That's what they told him. That's a tough story to believe. It's a hard sell. So naturally the doctor was like, hey man, I'm going to have to send you back to the future to get more proof. Because I don't believe you right now. Oh, so to bring something. Yeah, to, to bring back evidence. So so they send them back? They send it back to 1984. Let's go! Nobody believed me. Van Neumann later took me aside and says, I don't know whether to believe you or not. He says, we're going to find out. So he built a time machine there at the Institute, a small but workable one. Uh, so he said, you're going back to 83, and you're going to get proof and bring it back to me to prove that you were there and that I was there. <laughs> Oh, he did. He sent me more than once, and I came back with proof that he accepted. Do we know what the proof was? What did he No, he doesn't back? say. He doesn't say. He never says what the proof was? Yeah. I mean, the good the thing to be asked would be like, tell me something that only yourself would know. 
yeah in, in the 40s or something you know what i mean like that's all you would really have to do for proof or i don't know come back with a polaroid picture of me and you or yeah. so i don't know you could probably figure it out well that but you get into like a weird i guess because the what what's happening is the whole ship is being enveloped mm-hmm. so i guess you would be able to transport things back and forth yeah, I'm pretty sure you can bring whatever you want to. Otherwise, it'd be like the Terminator and you show up naked. Right, right. But okay. short of that, you know, you could you could bring back anything, I guess. Right, yeah, anything tangible that could mm-hmm. be brought into the bubble. Yeah. Okay. So that is the story of the Philadelphia Experiment, Chris. All right. And now that we have gone through that story, I am going to have to ruin all of it for you. <laughs> See, you were a little bit smarter this time that you didn't <laughs> you didn't tell me that it was all BS. What would you say if I told you everything that we just talked about was completely fake? Oh, I'm going to be disappointed. I, I will, because I was really excited about man sent back to the future to save Earth from being enveloped in a giant Tesla coil wave and sent into another region of space and time that doesn't actually exist, but exists because of this experiment. Yep. It's a great story. Uh, it's a hundred percent fake. No, a hundred percent. Nothing about this is real. As, Not as, one thing. Yeah. Unless we're like going with the conspiracy theorists, like there's a non-zero chance it happens. Right. Uh, there's mostly a zero chance it happened. So the origins of the story, and I'm pulling mainly from Robert Gorman's article called uh, Alias Carlos Allende in Fate Magazine in 1980, where he did a deep dive. Fate Magazine. Fate Magazine. Okay. Which is a paranormal magazine. Right. Uh, Yeah. So the origins of the Philadelphia Experiment as an urban legend, we got to go all the way back to the 50s. So this started with a ufologist named Morris K. Jessup, who wrote a book called The Case for the UFO. So Jessup went on a tour promoting the book and was saying that the U.S. government needs to fund research into anti-gravity and space travel, specifically using Einstein's unified field theory. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. So Einstein really did have a unified field theory. That's true. He didn't have a working one. Okay. He wanted one to exist because he said that we can't have special relativity. uh, Quantum mechanics. mechanics. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The two don't make, the two contradict each other. And so just in the fact that they contradict each other, neither of them can be true. Yeah, neither can be because there has to be one true theory to run everything. And that was and Einstein called it the unified field theory, but he never figured it out. Right. Right. And we still don't have it. We have Mm -hmm. theories like string theory that claim to be the unifying theory, but we still don't know which one of these unifying theories is actually true. Yeah, exactly. So in 1956, Jessup began to receive very strange letters in the mail from a man named Carlos Allende. The letters had very distinctive writing, random words were capitalized or underlined, and annotations were written in the margins. So in these letters, Carlos Allende scolded Jessup for promoting his book and promoting research into Einstein's unified field field theory, saying that the government had already ran tests using the theory to turn a battleship invisible and that it had disastrous results. So some random crank starts sending this guy letters and he's like, oh my God, this is 100% true. Yeah, he starts sending a ufologist letters. 
right, right, right. That's about what it, I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got it. I got it. Yeah, random crank. So Jessup wrote back because, you know, he's a researcher, right? He wants to get to the truth. Yeah. And he asked Carlos to provide some sort of evidence for his right. claims. Naturally. Uh, and it turns out that Carlos Allende's real name is Carl Allen. Uh, okay. And he couldn't actually provide any dates, names, or anything useful to prove the story. He was of referencing, course. yeah, he referenced newspapers that didn't actually exist uh, and articles that didn't actually exist. So Jessup ignores it thinking, okay, this is a crazy man. Yeah, this is a crank who's bothering me. Now the plot twist here, Chris. One year later, Jessup is called into the Office of Naval Research in Washington, D.C. Here we go, dude. Naval intelligence one of the highest levels of spook. So they brought him in specifically to question him on a copy of his book that they had been sent in the mail. It was an annotated copy of the case for the UFO and had all of this crazy stuff written in the margins in varying colors of pen. And inside of the annotations is a conversation between three different people. There's a Mr. A, a Mr. B, and a Jimmy, spelt J-E-M-I, uh, who made references to the Philadelphia experiment and generally showed their contempt for human beings while validating that all these like anti-gravity theories are real, but humans are too stupid to actually figure it out. Uh, but but Jessup didn't write all that in the book. It was somebody else. It was someone else who wrote it in his book and then mailed it to the, the Office of Naval Research. And so they're like, can you explain all of these crazy writings? Yeah, they're like, what's up with this? Do you have any information on this? Because like some dude sent this to us with all of these messages saying that it's real inside of the book. This and is we Carl Allen, right? This is definitely Carl Allen. When, so the intention of the book is that three aliens are writing in the margins, talking shit about humans and saying that all these theories are real. Okay. So that's what it. he was going for here. And right. the moment that Jessup sees it, he's like, this is the exact type of writing that I was being sent in the messages. It's Carl this, Allen. Yeah, this is Carl Allen. This yeah. is Carl Allen. Oh, man, dude. All right. So we got a crank out there just going absolutely nuts, being like, I'm going to connect all these dots. Yeah. So the Office of Naval Research hires a consulting company called the Vero Corporation to make copies of the annotated version of the case for the UFO so they could do research into it. Because at the time, apparently, the Navy was drawing on any strings to try and get an edge in the Cold War, including a crank who sent them a book. Right, right. They're like, well, you know, this guy could be a genius. So this Vero edition of the case for the UFO was passed around in like underground conspiracy circles for decades because it got out and it had all this crazy stuff in it. And people started, you know, in, in certain circles started to think that there was some truth to it. Wait, can we get a copy of this thing? You can get a copy of it. You can find it online. You can read the whole thing online. With all the crazy crank stuff in the margins. Yeah, what they have done is that they've typed it up. So the annotations are in different color letters, okay. but it is typed up. So it's not crazy in the right. margins anymore right. uh, but you can't find a copy of it still oh my god yeah just look up the vero edition of the case for the ufo okay got it so in 1979 robert gorman begins to investigate the philadelphia experiment right so it's kind of an urban legend that's been created based off the vero edition of case for the ufo right and in his research he discovered that his neighbors were actually parents of carl allen what? so yeah yeah. And his, his daughter would like play with their cats and he would kind of talk about his research. And he's like, oh, no, you're talking about our son. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. This is insanity. It's all madness. So the Allen family provides correspondence 
written from their son that matched the Vero edition in style and general crankness. And right. Carl had also sent them a copy of the Vero edition and said, look at what I did. You have to save this forever. I'm the one who wrote this. Yeah. yeah. I'm the guy. I'm the crank. Yeah. I'm the crank. <laughs> and Gorman, this journalist has put everything up online on his website. You can find all of the documents from his like birth certificate um, to when he worked um, for like, you know, uh, a certain boat. He was never actually in the military, but he, he did work on ships uh, and his letters and postcards that he had sent his family showing that he's a total yeah, prank. Right. Well, dude, right. In the 1940s and 50s, everyone was a part of the military industrial complex, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you, Joe Blow was a riveter on, you know, top secret military uh, technology or battleships or whatever. And you would get kind of an inside knowledge of how all this worked. Just being, you know, guy from Baltimore or whatever. Mm -hmm. So this journalist Gorman learns from Carl's parents that Carl was a really bright kid, but he was very big into pulling people's legs uh, and would make up a lot of fantastical tales as a child. And he eventually became completely outcasted from his family and would just write them crazy letters, right? So that was really the only contact they would have with him at that point. Yeah, so it wasn't fantastical tales. He was like schizophrenic. He was something. I don't know what it was, yeah, but he was something. Right. So this becomes an urban legend, right? And in... 1984, the story of the Philadelphia experiment was turned into a movie by Hollywood uh, that heavily dramatized the conspiracy. The plot line of this movie was that two men were on board the USS Eldridge during the experiment and they get blasted into the future uh, and have to race against time to save the planet. Okay. Right. So that may and sound the same, familiar. The same story that Al told us. And in 1988, Al Belix sees the movie and he says that his memories began to return about his involvement in the Philadelphia Experiment and the Montauk Project. Repressed memories. And Al goes public with the story in 1989 and began speaking at UFO conventions across the country. And this is according to his own website. He had no recollection of this until after he saw the movie in 88. Dude, we're going to have to do a Hollywood, Hollywood conspiracy episode very, very soon. Because how many times have we now heard, I saw it in a movie. And that's exactly what this is. Everything you just heard was Al Bielik seeing the movie and saying, oh, that's me. Because his me. story, it's two brothers who are on the Eldridge and get blasted into the future and have to save the planet. In the movie, it's two friends who are on the Eldridge and get blasted into the future and have to save the planet. Right. Yeah. It's all made oh, Yeah. Hollywood just wrote a, a movie about me. Yeah. This is my story. My favorite thing is that he didn't even see it when it came out. He saw right. it four it years, years later. Years later. And it was like, oh my God, this is my life. Yeah. <laughs> I'd completely forgotten every aspect of it until I saw this movie. And the story being was that the government wiped his memories because they didn't want right. him to remember his involvement in the time travel. Well, and Ron Allen showed us that it is possible for them to send 4G and 5G waves into your brain to make you forget things it's true so maybe it's just mkl tributes philadelphia experiment and that's why you forgot that's right okay i'm gonna go with that one so that will conclude the story of the philadelphia experiment chris one of my favorite urban legends i'd, I'd say that we've covered that definitely did not happen oh my god dude it was it was really good i mean really good lore dude he had a lot of connective tissue and that completely made up story he just told us. 
Yeah, he did. And it was it was a fun story. Everything about it is very fun. Story. It was a fun story told pretty convincingly with dates, names, places. I mean, hard facts that end up not being that hard, actually. Yeah. And apparently the USS Eldridge could not have been in harbor at the time that uh Al Belix says it was. It was at out doing war things. Yeah. They weren't just like it taking their destroyers. Yeah, they, they weren't taking their destroyers out of the battlefield and being like, let's just run tests on it for a while. Like they needed those you know, out this there. ship that we absolutely need to keep people safe and, you know, use as a transport protector ship. Yeah, we're going to use it on an experiment to blast energy at it and maybe create a portal. Just see what happens. Let's just see what happens. Well, Chris, on a scale of one to five invisible battleships, what do you give the story of the Philadelphia Experiment? Dude, it's a classic. I mean, it really is. Like I said, I didn't know a ton about it. I knew kind of generalizations. It is a conspiracy that has penetrated the conspiratorial culture, right? It is a... a a mother or father conspiracy at maybe even a grandfather or grandmother conspiracy, right? All kind of conspiracies are, especially today have a little taste of the Philadelphia experiment, right? Mm -hmm. Secret military experiments, Nikola Tessa, Albert Einstein, possible German Nazi running the whole thing. I mean, it's good stuff. It's all good stuff. And again, let me get on my soapbox. Directionally right. Do I think? <laughs> How is this directionally right? 100% directionally right. <laughs> How are we directionally right here? So I'm going to give it, what was my uh, grading scale? Uh, so one to five invisible battleships. I'm going to give it like three or four invisible battleships. Even on it being fake. What a great story. Dude, I'm giving it I'm giving it five invisible battleships. This was so fun to research, especially with all the stuff about the Vero edition and Carlos Allende writing postcards to a ufologist. Like it's yeah. just everything about this is wild. It's Both wild. the story and the and how the story became in our Yeah. There's so many twists and turns. Mm-hmm. I had no idea where we were going. I didn't know about the time travel part, actually. I just knew it was a ship that got turned invisible. And I was like, oh, this guy went to the 80s. Yeah. All right. That's cool. So that is the Philadelphia Experiment. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it. And we'll be back more next week. And if you want to request an episode as well, c2cpmpod at gmail.com. We'll take care of it for you. And that's the show. All conspiracy, all the time. Later.